you said in no uncertain terms the other day that no one is above the law. That said, um, the indictment of a former president, of a perhaps candidate for president, would arguably tear the country apart. Arguably, according to who, Lester? And as opposed to the way we are now? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on your internets on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, amongst other fine affiliates. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Bradcast, where I, by the way, am well aware that it seems we have covered nothing but terrible news on this program of late, uh, particularly regarding the environment. Mostly, I blame Desi Doyen for that, <laughs> but anyway, hi, Des. I uh, just read well, the news. Yeah, I don't no, make the I news. No, I understand. I understand. Uh, but guess what? Uh, we actually have some good news on that front to report today for a very welcome change regarding something that we tried to make quite a bit of noise about earlier this year. So uh, if listening to the broadcast generally makes you want to, I don't know, crawl out of your window onto the ledge and <laughs> consider jumping off it, don't do it. Don't do it, at least not yet. Some good news or some good-ish news, maybe, I don't know, coming up shortly. And with a guest who was instrumental in uh, helping to make some of that good news happen. Uh, And as if that is not swell enough, guess what? More good news. Uh, I believe, to help kick off today's show. Shortly after we got off the air yesterday, I received a text from Ernie Canning, uh, who uh, is our uh, uh, writes uh, at bradblog.com, a legal reporter. He tweeted, he texted, I should say, Lester Holt's interview with Merrick Garland confirms that Eliason and Marcy were spot on in their assessments of where the DOJ investigation was headed. So uh, Ernie was referring there to an interview on NBC News on Tuesday night with the attorney general 
uh, arguing that it backed up the case that both former federal prosecutor Randall Eliason and independent national security journalist Marcy Wheeler of Empty Wheel dot net have been making on this program for many months now as many were have been complaining that Merrick Garland the attorney general was not taking action against Donald Trump and his top peeps for their effort to steal the 2020 election but both Eliason and Wheeler have been on this program explaining repeatedly especially Marcy, who who reads virtually every indictment and motion and pleading that is filed by the DOJ in response to the January 6th insurrection and much more of the corruption of the previous administration uh, and the and the Trump campaign and so forth. They've been arguing repeatedly that the DOJ is doing exactly what would be expected of them if, in fact, they were working toward an indictment of Donald Trump and his top lieutenants. Well, uh, I I don't believe either have gone on record to say that Donald Trump would be charged in this matter, but rather that Merrick Garland and the DOJ are doing exactly what one would expect if they were investigating bringing charges against the former president, and that, as frustrating as it may be for many of us, this sort of thing actually takes time particularly when they're also bringing charges against some 850 or so of Trump's insurrectionists from January 6th. And when you're talking about bringing criminal charges against a former president of the United States, which has never been done before, if you're going to do that, you better make damn sure you get it right. You better cross every T, dot every I before you even contemplate such a thing. And by the way, all of this amongst the biggest investigation that the Department of Justice has ever carried out in our nation's history. But, uh, yeah, we have been a bit more bullish on uh, on Garland and the DOJ's efforts on this show, as maddeningly slow as it might feel, uh, more bullish than others have been. And there were two big pieces of news on Tuesday night that seemed to suggest, well, maybe we've had it right all along. At least when it comes to uh, Lester Holt's interview with Garland, as Ernie Canning saw it last night. I want to play you that interview uh, on the topic of charging Donald Trump from NBC on Tuesday night. And then we'll get to the other piece uh, as well. Here's Lester Holt with the attorney general. Let's start off and talk about uh, January 6th. We've just watched weeks of some pretty horrific testimony about what led up to January 6th and what happened that day. Just as an American, can you tell me what your impression was of what we heard? It's an important part of democracy that every American recognizes the truth of what happened on January 6th and in the time surrounding it. I think that this is an important part that we not uh, downgrade or uh, suppress how important that day was. And I think that the hearings did an extremely good job of reminding us and for people who didn't know in the first place, telling us how important that day was. And uh well, what a risk it, uh, it it meant for our democracy. Is the committee offering you anything in terms of an informal roadmap? Are you learning things you didn't know? The Justice Department has been doing the most wide-ranging investigation in its history. And the committee is doing an enormously wide-ranging investigation as well. It is inevitable that uh, there will be things that they find before we have found them. 
and there will, is inevitable that there will be things we find that they haven't found. But the Justice Department has, from the beginning, been moving urgently to learn everything we can about this period and to bring to justice everybody who's criminally responsible for interfering with the peaceful transfer of power from one administration to another, which is the fundamental element of our democracy. You said you're moving quickly at this. There's been a lot of criticism, a lot of pressure that the DOJ is kind of behind the power curve here, behind the committee, not moving quickly enough on what appears to be solid evidence in some cases. As I said, we, we have been moving urgently since the very beginning. We have a huge number of prosecutors and agents working on these cases. It is inevitable in this kind of investigation that there will be speculation about what we are doing, who we are investigating, what our theories are. The reason there is this speculation and uncertainty is that a fundamental tenet of what we do as prosecutors and investigators is to do it outside of the public eye. We do that for two important reasons. One is to protect the civil liberties of people and events that we're investigating. And the second is to ensure the success and the integrity of our investigation. Would a criminal referral from the committee carry a lot of weight? Would it be welcomed by the Department of Justice? So I think this is totally up to the committee. You know, we will have the evidence that the committee has presented and whatever evidence it gives us. I don't think that the nature of how they style the manner in which information is provided uh, is, is a particular significance from any legal point of view. That's not to downgrade it or, to, or disparage it. It's just that that's not what that's not the issue here. We have our own investigation pursuing through the principles of prosecution. You said in no uncertain terms the other day that no one is above the law. That said, um, the indictment of a former president, of a perhaps candidate for president, would arguably tear the country apart. Is that your concern as you make your decision down the road here? Do you have to think about things like that? Look, we pursue justice without fear or favor. We intend to hold everyone, anyone who was criminally responsible for the events surrounding January 6th, for any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another, accountable. That's what we do. We don't pay any attention to other uh, issues with respect to that. So if Donald Trump were to become a candidate for president again, that would not change your schedule or, or how you move forward or don't move forward? Uh, say again that uh, we will hold accountable anyone who is criminally responsible for attempting to interfere with the transfer, legitimate lawful transfer of power from one administration to the next. How is your department dealing with the pressure? Every day you wake up, there's a, a, a column in a newspaper talking about what you will do and when you will do it. The only pressure that I my prosecutors or the agents feel is the pressure to do the right thing. That's the only way we can pursue the rule of law. That's the only way we can keep the confidence of the American people in the rule of law, which is an essential part of our democratic system. That was Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking with NBC's Lester Holt on Tuesday night, saying that he would uh, move urgently, that they have been moving urgently, to learn everything they can to bring to justice anyone or everyone who is criminally responsible for interfering with the peaceful transfer of power from one administration to the next. 
Uh, feel better about uh, any of that after hearing that, Desi Doyne? Um, well, I had already believed and understood what Eliason and Marcy Lee Wheeler were both mm-hmm. saying about plenty of evidence that the DOJ is pursuing an investigation. So, yeah, I mean, it's good to know that other people are now seeing it as well, what they've been talking about. But it still doesn't mean that Trump will be charged. It doesn't. It doesn't. But it does seem to suggest he's on the case. Now, yes. uh, listeners may or may not feel differently about it. I don't know. Drop me a line if you like. I'd love to... Uh, hear from you. Maybe we'll share some of it on air. You can write me. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. But wait, there is more. There is more good news. And I do think that those remarks uh, should be seen as good news. But yes, more good good news. Am I okay? I know. It's crazy. (laughs) Uh, But uh, also from Tuesday night, just an hour or two after that NBC interview aired with the Attorney General, uh, this comes via an exclusive from Carol Lennig, Devlin Barrett, Josh Dawsey, uh, and Spencer Sue at Washington Post. The Justice Department is investigating President Donald Trump's actions as part of his as part of its criminal probe of efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Some might call that efforts to steal the 2020 election, but, you know, or overthrow the government that according to four people familiar with the matter, according to the Post. Now, while that might seem Obvious to those who have been following broadcast coverage uh, of all of this over the past many months, I believe this is the first confirmation of that from a major corporate news outlet, at least, that the department is investigating Trump's action in a criminal probe. Prosecutors who are questioning witnesses before a grand jury, including two top aides to Vice President Mike Pence, that would be his chief of staff, Mark Short, and top legal advisor Greg Jacob, have uh, asked in recent days about uh, have been asked in recent days about conversations with Donald Trump, with his lawyers and others in his inner circle who sought to substitute Trump allies for actual certified electors from some states that Joe Biden won. The prosecutors have asked hours of detailed questions, according to The Post, about meetings Trump led in December of 2020 and January of 2021. Now, that would include, among other meetings that we know about, that crazy December 18, 2020 meeting with Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Flynn, the Overstock.com guy, Patrick Byrne, talking about the seizure of voting machines around the country by the Department of Defense and appointing Powell as a special counsel to investigate fraud. As well as, for example, the meeting where uh, Trump had rogue wingnut attorney John Eastman try to sell Mike Pence on tossing the election back to the states on January 4 or simply uh, January 4 of 2021 or simply, uh, you know, tossing out the results completely. Uh, And it would include that celebrity apprentice style meeting on I think it was either January 2 or January 5 of 2021, I can't recall, where Trump wanted to decapitate the Department of Justice by removing the acting attorney general at the time, Jeffrey Rosen, replace him with a low level lackey, a guy by the name of Jeffrey Clark, who had promised to send letters to state legislatures falsely claiming that the DOJ had found evidence of massive fraud and that they should go back and reconsider who they had certified uh, as as the uh, electors from their state. 
That scheme, you'll recall, was cut short when Trump was told that all of the top attorneys at the Department of Justice and at the White House would quit immediately if he did that. Prosecutors, according to The Washington Post, have also been asking witnesses about uh, Trump's pressure campaign on Pence to overturn the election, the instructions that he gave to his lawyers and advisors about the fake electors and so forth. Some of the questions, according to The Post, focused directly on the extent of Trump's involvement in the fake elector effort led by his outside lawyers, including John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani. In addition, Justice Department uh, investigators in April received phone records of key officials and aides in the Trump administration, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. This is back in April. This is well before the televised hearings in the U.S. House began in June and July on the subject. Many say, oh, their DOJ is only kicking into gear now because of the pressure from those hearings. Well, Back in April, they were already subpoenaing uh, phone records of top officials in the White House. Now, the uh, Post and uh, others have previously written that the department is examining the conduct of Eastman and Giuliani and others. But the degree of prosecutors interest in Trump's actions, they write, has not been previously reported, nor has the review of senior Trump aides phone records. Federal criminal investigations are by design opaque, they write, and probes involving political figures are among the most closely held secrets at the Justice Department. But it should be noted, as the Post does here, that many end without criminal charges, as Desi Doyen was suggesting could happen in this case. So there is still no guarantee of that. But to those who have been complaining that Garland and the DOJ are doing nothing, well, I would think that this report from The Post on Tuesday night and that interview with Lester Holtz, Holtz in, in combination uh, should sort of quiet down the complaints a bit for now, maybe, at least about whether they are investigating in trying to understand how and why Trump partisans and lawyers sought to change the outcome of the election, one person familiar with the probe told the paper that investigators also want to understand at a minimum what Trump told his lawyers and senior officials to do. For example, if he ordered any of these things uh, you know, to happen, if he was the one who issued these orders, well, he could be in very big trouble. But even if he did not order them, but he just participated in this conspiracy, in a conspiracy to do them, well, he should also be in very big trouble even for that. And it certainly looks as though he, at a minimum, participated in all of these conspiracies. So uh, there are uh, two principal tracks of the investigation that could ultimately lead to uh, additional scrutiny of Trump, the Post reports, uh, based on two people familiar with the situation who are speaking on condition of anonymity. The first centers on seditious conspiracy and conspiracy to obstruct a government proceeding. In other words, as Garland has, you know, also previously promised, they will bring charges against those who did not invade the Capitol itself, but just participated in a seditious conspiracy to obstruct the government. The way they have brought charges against the leaders of these far right groups uh, of the um, Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes and 
Enrique Tarrio, they did not breach the Capitol. But they were allegedly involved in planning all of this, and they are facing seditious conspiracy charges right now. The second track here involved potential fraud associated with the false electors uh, or with pressure that Trump and his allies allegedly put on the Justice Department itself and others to falsely claim that the election was rigged, that votes were fraudulently cast when they were not. And then there are recent subpoenas that the Post reports on that were not known previously, showing that two Arizona state legislators were ordered to turn over a bunch of communications. A lot. This uh, quoting from the subpoena here to um, one of those state legislators in Arizona, they are see- the DOJ is commanding. That, that they turn over communications to, from, with, or including any of the following, regardless of subject matter. A, any member, employee, or agent of the executive branch or legislative branch of the federal government. B, any member, employee, or agent of Donald J. Trump or any organization advocating in favor of the 2020 re-election of Donald J. Trump, including Donald J. Trump for President, Inc. And then it lists a whole bunch of other familiar names, Bernie Carrick, Boris Epstein, Jenna Ellis, the uh, Republican uh, attorney who has uh, somehow uh, escaped much scrutiny so far for reasons that I don't understand. Former uh, Fox News attorney Joe DeGenova, John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Victoria Tensing, Joe Geneva's wife, also a Fox News TV lawyer, uh, as our friend, uh, retired attorney and medium blogger Keith Barber wrote about uh, one of these subpoenas last night. Uh, he said, quote, please note that any member of the executive branch would include Donald Trump. So any communications at all with Donald Trump, it would also include Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, anyone else in the administration If I was an attorney representing any name on that list, he wrote, I would advise my client that we have to assume they are at least a subject, likely a target of the grand jury. And uh, just one more piece on this for now. CNN is reporting late this afternoon that former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson is now cooperating with the Justice Department's criminal investigation into the plots to subvert the 2020 election. Hutchinson has cooperated extensively with the House Select Committee investigation into the attack. She has, uh, having sat for four closed-door depositions, she revealed how Trump and his inner circle were warned about the potential for violence on January 6th, how Trump wanted throngs, uh, wanted to join throngs of his supporters at the Capitol. She bolstered the narrative that the committee has been driving toward that Trump incited and supported the insurrection as part of a desperate power grab to steal a second term. And that many of his top advisors thought that his schemes were, in fact, illegal. But now she is working directly with the Department of Justice. In fact, Uh, The DOJ has also reached out to other Trump White House officials regarding the Capitol attack. That, according to Alyssa Farah Griffin, the former Trump White House communications director, she told CNN on Wednesday that she had not been contacted personally by the DOJ, but she was, quote, aware of other White House officials who have been reached out to by DOJ and are planning to cooperate. 
She said, I don't want to get ahead of their announcements, uh, but I think you could piece it together based on who has testified before the January 6th committee. She says, again, these are not uh, these are, are related, but separate track investigations, the DOJ and the House. But she said, I think DOJ is keeping an eye on who is coming before January 6th committee and who may have helpful information. So there you go again. Again, none of this means that Trump will face charges, though it is sounding more and more certain that some of his top lieutenants will and that the DOJ is, in fact, looking very closely at potentially bringing charges against the disgraced former president, who, at least in my opinion, is now toast if he thinks he can win a second term, at least without state legislatures uh, somehow stealing it for him, which they may uh, well be able to do, quote unquote, lawfully, depending on how the Supreme Court decides in Moore v. Harper, a case they're hearing this fall that we've warned about where they could decide that state legislatures can do anything they like, no matter what the voters have to say about it when it comes to which electoral votes they decide to send to D.C. So anyway, this is likely to be a very bumpy ride, but I think the uh, the news of the past 12 to 24 hours or so is undoubtedly encouraging news, or at least should be. Again, your mileage may vary. If so, feel free, drop me email. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. I'd love to hear from you. Got it? All right. More encouraging news straight ahead on the Bradcast. I, I know that's not what talk radio uh, shows are supposed to do, you know, bring good news. But maybe that's why I don't care for most talk radio shows. <laughs> good news from the U.S. Postal Service of all places is straight ahead as they are beginning to fold in the fight to force them to move their fleet to all electric vehicles. That story and Adrian Martinez of Earth Justice joins us next. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Wait a minute, Mr. Postman. What do you think you're doing there? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So earlier this year, we spent some time railing against a new U.S. Postal Service contract created by the agency under its corrupt Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, who was appointed during the corrupt Trump administration to spend more than $11 billion to replace the service's aging 30-year-old mail delivery truck fleet with uh, hundreds of thousands of new trucks. Using a wildly flawed, to say the least, economic and environmental study, the USPS planned to purchase 165,000 much-needed new delivery trucks, but just 10% of them 
were to be electric vehicles. The rest of this new fleet would burn at least 110,000 gallons of fuel each year and likely much more, getting just over a ridiculous eight miles per gallon. But hey, in the uh, Postal Service's defense, that's 0.4 miles per gallon better than the decades-old trucks that these new ones are poised to replace. In fact, it was pathetic. It would mean, as one of our guests on this topic wrote at the time, that the new trucks, comprising about 30% of the federal government's automotive fleet, would burn through, quote, a jaw-dropping 2 to 4 billion gallons of fuel. Billion gallons of fuel over their expected 20-year lifetime. As if all of that was not obscene enough... Vice reported at the time that the newly designed gasoline-powered trucks estimated to clock in at 8,501 pounds with mail on board would almost double the weight of the current USPS delivery vehicle uh, fleet, which meant that postal service, the Postal Service would avoid the EPA's new fuel efficiency standards for light-duty trucks, which are limited to, as luck would have it, 8,500 pounds, meaning if they were just 0.01 pound lighter, they would actually be illegal. All of this madness, of course, comes amid a climate crisis that is raging out of control. As listeners know, it has consumed much of our coverage on this program over the past several weeks as scorching record temperatures and deadly heat waves and droughts and floods continue to ravage Nations from Asia to Europe to pretty much everywhere here in the U.S., even as President Biden has vowed to take executive actions to meet his goal of cutting carbon emissions by 50 percent by 2035 and to reach net zero emissions by 2050. That, after both the Supreme Court and the corrupt Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, have worked to scuttle his and the Democrats' climate agenda on behalf of the dirty fossil fuel industry. In February, Biden's EPA and White House Council on Environmental Quality wrote a letter to the USPS objecting to their plan to purchase tens of thousands of dirty internal combustion vehicles, demanding that they review their flawed environmental analysis and consider electrifying the entire fleet instead. Shortly afterward, in April, 16 states, the District of Columbia and several environmental groups subsequently sued the Postal Service to force them to do so. Well, here's something you rarely hear on this program these days. Good news. Well, sort of. Mostly, I think, the uh, U.S. Postal Service pledged last week, according to Washington Post, to electrify at least 40 percent of its new delivery fleet. That's an increase from just 10 percent that climate activists hailed as a major step toward reducing the government's environmental footprint. The Postal Service had been set to purchase as many as 165,000 vehicles from Oshkosh Defense, of which just 10 percent would have been electric under the original procurement plan. Now it will acquire 50,000 trucks from Oshkosh, half of which will be EVs, and it will also buy another 34,500 commercially available vehicles with sufficient electric models to make 4 in 10 trucks in its delivery fleet zero-emission vehicles. 
I think the pressure from environmental justice groups, labor unions, is working, Adrian Martinez of Earth Justice told The Post. There's still some work that needs to be done, but the initial attitude that we got when we first met is shifting, he said. And it's a welcome shift indeed. Joining us now is Adrian Martinez, who we spoke with about all of this back in February. He is a senior attorney for the nonprofit environmental law group Earth Justice, where he works on clean air, clean energy and environmental justice issues and apparently helps win one or two of them every now and again. Welcome back to the broadcast, Counselor. Oh, thank you for having me. So uh, when this uh, news broke last week, Adrian, I, I immediately heard from a listener, Adri Langston, who tweeted me at the Brad blog to say, quote, please bring Adrian Martinez back on to talk about how his group's advocacy helped make this happen. Well, consider it done, Adri. Uh, so tell me, Adrian, how did Earth Justice help make this happen? Yeah, so Earth Justice has been um, working on this issue with a lot of other organizations, with states, um, to push the Postal Service to go to 100% zero-emission vehicles. And mm-hmm. I think the good news is this public pressure starting to work. We still have a lot more work to be done, mm-hmm. but people have been doing several things. So one, people have been contacting the Postal Service. So Earth Justice supporters have submitted more than 100,000 emails nice. to the Postal Service. Mm-hmm. We even have a postcard in our quarterly magazine that people can send to the Postal Service and tell them they want 100% zero emission vehicles. So that's one piece, mm-hmm. and it's my understanding that a lot of other organizations have submitted, um, and their supporters have submitted lots of mail and mm-hmm. email to the Postal Service. And then also, Earth Justice is representing two organizations, Clean Air Now out of Kansas City and Sierra Club, mm-hmm. in litigation challenging this decision, along with our colleagues at the Center for Biological Diversity. And then several state attorney generals filed a lo- similar lawsuit, mm-hmm. and then some labor unions and another environmental organization filed another lawsuit. So it's this litigation, it's the public correspondence with the Postal Service, and this public pressure is working. Mm. Still got a long way to go with them, but shows you that the more you weigh in, the more you can make progress. Yeah, no kidding. And it's good to see uh, something move ahead. Uh, it, it, and, and it's certainly good news, you know, on one level, but... Uh, you know, more EVs is obviously better than more deadly gas guzzlers. Uh, and we get so little good news. I want to make sure that we celebrate at least that victory. I'm loath to undercut it. That said, government regulators have estimated that 150,000 of these Oshkosh gas-powered trucks would emit roughly the same amount of carbon dioxide, earth-warming carbon dioxide, as 4.3 million passenger vehicles. And uh, you guys, uh, environmental groups like yours, have called for the uh, the USPS fleet to be, at a minimum, 75% electric. And even the Postal Service's own IG has found that 95% of delivery routes are perfectly suitable for electrification. Now, President Biden has set a goal for the entire government fleet to be EV-powered by 2035, uh, the Postal Service makes up the single largest share of that uh, federal civilian uh, fleet of vehicles. 
And these new trucks are going to be on the road for at least 20 years, far beyond 2035 when he wants it to be all electric. So this is obviously seemingly very good news. 40% electric is better than 10% electric. But is it really yeah. anywhere near enough? Can this, can this matter be pushed farther at this point to what is really needed to meet those critical climate goals? Yeah, it's, it's nowhere near enough. I mean, I think the, the fact of the matter is, is this is a fleet that should be um, 100% electric mm-hmm. down the road. I mean, especially because these vehicles will be replaced over the next decade. Mm-hmm. And so we recognize that the Postal Service has to get some of the old clunkers off the road now. Mm-hmm. But we think electric vehicles are suitable for a large number of the routes right now. And then down the road, it will only get better. The good news is um, the Postal Service is looking at more vehicles in its new comet period that they're hosting right now. Okay. And so even beyond the number of vehicles that was previously anticipated, the 165,000 they were Mm. looking to replace, they're looking at replacing even more. Mm. And then they're also looking at more options. And it's just another opportunity to tell our government officials, the folks who run the Postal Service, that they need to do better. And I think, um, and then they can't use old antiquated um, assumptions on gas prices being low um, mm-hmm. and things like that that help justify lots of internal combustion engines. And I think the the, the fact of the matter is we we now seeing shifts in this agency. I think the the what I take is that we need to put even more pressure on the agency to mm-hmm. get them where they need to be. We see that the federal government is stalled on its climate package that Mm -hmm. they were negotiating. Um, So we need to rely on things like government agencies to procure the right types of vehicles. This is so many vehicles um, and so much oil that we can prevent from being burnt that, you know, the stakes are really high. And I think the next thing is, you know, public pressure is working. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Not just relying on these uh, uh, federal agencies, but relying on people to put pressure on those agencies. Can the uh, can the president, uh, who has you know vowed to take major executive actions now that uh, both the Supreme Court and Joe Manchin have you know sort of crushed the Biden agenda to to cut carbon emissions in half? Can he simply order a change to this contract uh, in his own uh, executive actions? No, and it's mainly because how the Postal Service is designed. Mm-hmm. But here's what President Biden can do. President Biden just appointed two new people to the Board of Governors, mm-hmm. which is the entity that oversees the Postal Service. And it's a nine-person group, mm-hmm. and this group is the, person, is the entities that um, hire or fire the Postmaster General. Right. By, President Biden also has two new appointees that will come up at the end of the year. And so it's our understanding that the two new Biden appointees are already having an impact during their confirmation hearings. They mm-hmm. um, confirmed they would engage in this vehicle issue, unlike um, the Board of Governors, which has been largely on the sidelines during this debate. Mm-hmm. And so we can just add more people to the Board of Governors that recognize the importance of this issue. And so we hope President Biden will quickly um, appoint good people, people who understand vehicles and transportation electrification and you know we think this is an important opportunity to really put his mark on the postal service and create more pressure 
on the Postmaster General to deliver on a 100% electric vehicle fleet. Now, just to be clear, uh, because there's been talk of of, uh, the president declaring a national climate emergency, many are calling for him to do so. Reportedly, the White House is weighing that. Even if he did uh, declare a climate emergency, would that 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 still would not grant, give him the powers that would be needed to simply mandate this change. This actually has to be a decision by the uh, by the post office, or I guess by by the courts, if your lawsuits are successful. Yeah, I mean, really, a lot of the onus is on the postal service, mm-hmm. and in this case, the postmaster general is a very important player here. Um, it's our understanding that he's really calling the shots on this one. And, and, and so, wh- yeah. wh- Why is he even still there? Is there just not a, uh, a majority yet of Biden appointees or Democratic appointees on the Postal Board of Governors to get rid of this Louis DeJoy character yet? So um, the Postmaster General is still there because he can only be um, fired by the Board of Governors, which is a bipartisan mm-hmm. entity that still has... Um, a significant number of Trump appointees on it. Mm. So um, you require the Board of Governors to replace the Postmaster General, or, you know, the Board of Governors could just get more engaged in this decision and put more pressure on their Postmaster General to Mm -hmm. deliver mail via zero-emission vehicles. Uh, last March, uh, Congress passed a $107 billion postal agency overhaul bill, and that freed up money, according to Washington Post, for the uh, that, that postal leaders had sought for capital improvements. Lawmakers from both parties specifically pointed to the agency's need for new trucks because the fleet is 30 years old and doesn't have airbags or air conditioning, uh, and it would help keep up with the private sector EV investment. This was all cited when they approved the legislation. But even while granting $107 billion to the USPS, was Congress unable or, or simply unwilling to mandate, along with that deal, that they have to go all electric? We'll give you $107 billion to save the post office, but you guys need to go all electric. Was that, did that even come up uh, in the course of this bill? It did, but, you know, unfortunately there wasn't a lot in there on this issue. But, you know, one of the other things to keep in mind is um, congressional representatives are continuing to put pressure on the Postal Service. So Mm -hmm. that's another entity that we should be communicating with is your congressional representative, your senators. Let them know that this is important Mm -hmm. and they need to fight for these zero-emission vehicles. And, you know, we have found that certain senators and congressional reps can have a lot of influence over this agency because these are, you know, the agency often comes before certain um, committees. So, for example, Senator Peters has a very prominent role in one of his committees. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think this is, you know, getting everyone to put pressure on this is important because this is one of the largest, if not the largest, vehicle procurements in history. Yeah. So we can't (laughs) we can't get this wrong. Yeah, and I note I note that it's coming at the same time, and I'm wondering if this, uh, Adrian Martinez, if you know if this has any effect. Amazon is uh, beginning wide-scale deliveries this week 
with a newly designed electric cargo van. They're rolling out in Baltimore, Dallas, Kansas City, Nashville, Phoenix, San Diego, Seattle, St. Louis, among other cities. They're buying 100,000 of these electric delivery vehicles through 2030, uh, and they plan to roll out um, thousands of them in more than 100 cities this year. Private companies are doing it. Uh, Has any any of that had any effect on uh, the Postal Service's thinking here? Well, we hope that with this new comment period, they have opening where people can weigh in mm-hmm. to the Postal Service. They will consider this. And I think the important thing here is, you know, the Postal Service can make a difference in the market for electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. If they're ordering hundreds of thousands of vehicles, yeah. that's a huge deal for a manufacturer to get that contract yep. and to do that work. And so, you know, they, they can have a huge influence just like Amazon does. And so that's all we're asking for them is to be leaders. And that's where the government should be. They should be the leaders in addressing climate pollution. And, you know, I think I, I think the private sector that's doing delivery of packages is showing more leadership than the Postal Service. But, you know, we're, we're making some progress and hopefully we can convince them to do more. Let me talk about that contractor that uh, the post, post Office is working with for a moment, this company, Oshkosh Defense. Uh, yep. in, in Wisconsin. They're a defense contractor. They make heavy-duty military vehicles. They've never made any electric vehicles, as I understand. And uh, and while their shop in, in Wisconsin is a union shop, I think, only after receiving this, this contract, they announced that the new postal trucks would actually not be built in that union shop in Wisconsin, but in a non new non-union facility down in South Carolina, I believe. Uh, do you have any idea, Adrian, why this company, instead of, say, you know, an American automobile company with existing facilities and some experience in making electric vehicles, any sense why Oshkosh was chosen during the Trump administration for this contract in the first place? Yeah, it's not It's not clear. Uh, I'm, I don't know if they would be the, the first choice to make, um, you know, 50,000 or even more. Mm-hmm electric vehicles. So, you know, a lot of that is not 100% clear. But one of the things that has been articulated by the Postal Service is that they're going to cap that contract at 50000 mm. And if they go above that, because, you know, the original proposal was to go up to 165000 mm-hmm. they do a new environmental review. So, uh, you know, I think the pressure on this issue um, from labor unions and environmental groups has been really powerful. Um, you know, we think the people who make the vehicles is just as important as getting the zero emission vehicles. And it's just an immense opportunity to put people to work in the zero emission economy mm-hmm. in our country. So there's no reason we should be buying non-union made vehicles. And then there's no reason we should be buying tons of um, internal combustion engines. And so we hope that you know, the Postal Service can address both these important issues, the workforce and the environmental consequences of internal combustion engines in this one decision. And And so we continue to push them on that issue. And I'm wondering if you have any comment on, I had mentioned that uh, Vice report uh, earlier this year that these uh, gas-powered trucks from Oshkosh would come in just over, you know, just one pound over what would otherwise be considered light trucks. (laughs) Uh, what yeah. a coincidence! And then they would have a different mileage requirement under EPA regulations. Can can you confirm that? And what, if anything, can or should be done about that? Yeah, I mean, so the other thing that's happening is 
considering how many vehicles they they buy that are called purpose built, which mm-hmm. is what this is. Mm-hmm. And they might buy more what they're calling custom off the shelf vehicles. These are vehicles you could go to any manufacturer and buy. You know, right now they they deliver mail with a lot of uh, you know, Dodge Ram vans mm-hmm. um, and other things like that. And so they're looking at buying more of those. And so I think it's really an important opportunity for the Postal Service to, to really look at its fleet and figure out how can it get the most zero emission vehicles out there, whether it's using these custom off-the-shelf vehicles or getting a manufacturer to, you know, purpose-built or built specifically mm-hmm. for them, you know, vehicles. And so, you know, we hope that our litigation is successful. We hope that the continued pressure from the public forces them to to do better because, you know, we, what we've seen is since we've started this effort, we're starting to get more and more commitments. I mean, we started with a commitment to do 0% electric vehicles. Then yeah. we got 10, and now we're at 40. So we need to stop when we get to 100%. <laughs> Good. I hope you will keep going. I know we will, and uh, we, we uh, hope to support you and Earth Justice any way that we can. I, I, you know, to say the least, this is still imperfect. I know there's still more work to do, but I, I wanted to talk about it because I believe that it illustrates that, you know, committed folks— we the people, folks like yourself and, and Earth Justice and, and, yes, even elected Democrats in Congress and the White House and at federal agencies, when they speak up, as they have here, they can change bad co- government policy for the better if we make noise and take action. And it sounds like you would agree. I'm not being overly optimistic here when, uh, when, when reporting that and encouraging people to continue to make noise. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. In in the climate space, we need some good news now and again. And this is one piece of good news, but we need to keep up the fight because we need to make this news even better. Indeed. We could use good news in any space these days, but especially the climate. Adrian Martinez, senior attorney for the nonprofit environmental law group Earth Justice. You can find their work at earthjustice.org. Hopefully there's a, a, a way for people to contact you know, officials in the post office or at least information on how to do that via earthjustice.org. You can also find them on Twitters at earthjustice. And you can find Adrian at L.A. Smog Guy. Adrian Martinez, always great speaking with you, sir. I hope to uh, have you back soon to talk about the when we're now at 70 percent. How about that? <laughs> great. Thank you for having me. Thanks, man. Okay, things moving in the right direction. At least we will take it. That suffices for good news these days, I think. And indeed it does, because really the the Postal Service affects everybody. Those gas-guzzling delivery trucks, they are a major polluter in your neighborhood, Mm. in in every neighborhood. And and also because higher gas prices are going to be passed on to postal customers. So going all electric will help keep those prices down. And... I love the fact that it shows that public pressure works. Um, And it shows, though, that it does have to be huge to counter the powerful interests that are arrayed against it. And, you know, it's a real David and Goliath situation, but it is working. So far. So far. So far, so good. We're working on it. Quick break, and we'll come back with a little bit more good news, I think, uh, to end this otherwise good news broadcast. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. 
We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. It's all right. Yeah, it's all right. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A little bit more of what will suffice for uh, good news today before we get out. Yesterday on the program, we played some of some audio from Joe Biden on Monday as he was slamming his predecessor in videotaped remarks to a black law enforcement group in Florida, explaining that, quote, you can't be pro-insurrection and pro-cop. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-American. Good comments, but as he had been recovering from COVID still, he was very congested. He was a bit hoarse. Well, he sounded much better on Wednesday. President Biden has uh, now twice tested negative for COVID-19. He will stop isolating, according to his physician, after completing a five-day course of the antiviral treatment Paxlovid. His symptoms have been steadily improving and are almost completely resolved, the doctor said. Uh, Giving these reassuring factors, he will discontinue his strict isolation measures. Biden, who uh, the White House says first tested positive for the virus last Thursday tweeted a picture of a negative antigen test and wrote back and wrote back to the Oval. Thanks to Doc for the good care and to all of you for your support. His quick recovery is notable, of course, because his age puts him at risk for severe disease. According to The Hill, health experts were optimistic about the president's case because he received his COVID-19 vaccinations and two booster doses He continued to work remotely from the White House residence as he was isolating. The White House has used the president's case to encourage Americans who have not yet gotten vaccinated or received boosters to do so immediately as the country fights a surge in cases from the B.A. 5 variant. Now, I should note that many folks who used Paxlovid, that antiviral treatment, actually had a rebound case of covid a week or so later. So. I'm not a doctor, but I would not say Biden is yet completely out of the woods. But on Wednesday, he certainly looked and sounded a lot better during remarks in the Rose Garden. It was his first public appearance in person since he tested positive for covid on July 21. He walked out of the White House on Wednesday with his aviator glasses <laughs> uh, and a dark face mask that he'll continue wearing for a number of days when he's around other people. Uh, his Isolation ended by telling Americans that they can, quote, live without fear of the pandemic if they take advantage of booster shots and treatments, the protections that he credited with his swift recovery. Here's the bottom line. When my predecessor got COVID, he had to get helicoptered to Walter Reed Medical Center. He was severely ill. Thankfully, he recovered. When I got COVID, I worked from upstairs to the White House and the offices upstairs. And uh, for the, that five-day period, the difference is vaccinations, of course, but also three new tools, free to all and widely available. You don't need to be president to get these tools to be used for your defense. In fact, the same booster shots, the same at-home test, the same treatment that I got is available to you. My administration has made sure that all Americans across the country, from all walks of life, have free access to those tools. COVID was killing thousands of Americans a day when I got here. That isn't the case anymore. 
You can live without fear by doing what I did, get boosted, get tested, and get treatment. At the same time, my administration remains vigilant. Right now, we have the tools to keep you from getting severely ill or dying from COVID. But we're not stopping there. Earlier this week, we had a conference at the White House for about the next generation of vaccines with the goal of keeping people from getting sick in the first place, getting COVID at all, even getting it. Let me close with this. Over the past 18 months, my administration has left no stone unturned in our fight against this pandemic. None. We brought down deaths by nearly 90 percent since I took office because of the help of all the people in this Rose Garden. Business and schools responded. Grandparents are hugging their kids and grandkids again. Weddings, birthdays, celebrations are happening in person again. So let's keep emerging from one of the darkest moments in our history with hope and light for what can come. Get vaccinated if you haven't gotten already. And now get boosted. Order your free test. And if you get sick and test positive, seek treatment. Take advantage of these life-saving tools. We have more of these tools than we ever had before. And to my friends in Congress, let's keep investing in these tools, vaccinations, treatments, tests, and more so we can help making them available to Americans, the American people, on a permanent basis. Let's get moving, when I say permanent basis, as long as they are needed. Let's keep moving forward safely. God bless you all. And now I get to go back to the Oval Office. Thank you all very much. President Biden speaking uh, on the, uh, in the Rose Garden on Wednesday, uh, looking and sounding much, much better. Indeed, yes. So uh, there you go. Nothing but good news. If you were uh, <laughs> on that uh, ledge at the beginning of the show, ready to jump off, I hope you have crawled back in the window and realized, eh, maybe we'll get through this. Emphasis on maybe. we got to get out. Thanks to my producer, Desi Doyen, and to my guest today, Adrian Martinez of EarthJustice.org, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. It's always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends and neighbors uh, and enemies, of course. All of that made possible by those of you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate during our summer fun drive. Thank you for that. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. In the